Welcome to the West Side Audio Message Podcast. We hope you enjoy today's message. And if you're looking for more ways to connect with West Side Assembly of God, feel free to check us out at www.westsideag.org. You'll find all the information about our service times, upcoming events, and opportunities for you to plug in and get connected with West Side Assembly of God. Additionally, you'll find a complete online archive of all of the previous and current messages absolutely free of charge. We hope you are encouraged by this week's message, and thanks again for downloading the West Side Audio Message Podcast. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own. But they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. From time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Now, this is a very interesting and candid glimpse into the early church community. The selflessness of these people is noteworthy. It's remarkable. And given that in a little introduction, we do have to be careful how we interpret this passage, what we think it implies about what we ought to do. But there are still some important points to be made from this. One of the errors we might run into if we don't interpret this passage correctly is totally disregarding this as being an account of something that happened many years ago and what in the world does it have to do with us. And that would be a mistake to look at it that way because it does have something to do with us. The second error is quite the opposite of that. And that would be to say, we look at this and think, we all have to do the same thing, so everybody go out and sell your houses and lands and bring your money in here and we'll do with it as we see fit. And that's not what the Scripture is implying at all. The first point I have is simply a question. Is your wallet saved? Salvation should be and have an impact on our entire being. Coming into a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ is supposed to have an impact on how we think and how we act. It changes our values. It, it, it impacts our morals. It impacts our philosophies. And it should take everything about us and bring it into compliance with what God wants for us. We have these little reservations in our life about I'm saved, but I don't want to let God have certain areas of my life. I, I have to question what our salvation is all about. Our salvation is about a, a total yieldedness to God so that when he speaks, when he requests, when he asks of us, we respond. We don't need to have reservations about Lord, I love you. I thank you for salvation. I want to go to heaven. But please don't ask me to do this. Now, any of you that have one of those, please don't ask me to do this. Go to prayer. Get some things fixed in your life. There might be things you fear very much. But willingness to do whatever God called you to do is one of the deals. And those places where we fear going there is where we say, God, 
I'll do it, but you're going to have to help me, okay? We can't hold out on God. Salvation is not about having those little points of reservation in life. It's about selling out. When we get saved, here's some of the things, just as an example, that ought to change in our life as a result of our salvation. If you have bitterness and you get saved, you need to let God turn that bitterness into love and compassion and forgiveness. Don't carry that bitterness over into your salvation experience. Things have to change because Christ has come into your life, because the Holy Spirit is going to indwell your life. If you're self-centered when you became saved, don't you continue to be self-centered as a Christian. It doesn't work. That should be replaced by outward-reaching concern for others. If you come to Christ with paralyzing negativity in your life, that needs to be replaced by hope and confidence. If you come to Jesus with fear, don't try to continue in your walk with Christ nursing your fears. Ask God to help you replace those with courage and boldness. If you come to God with worldly wisdom, don't bring your worldly wisdom into God's house. Find the wisdom of the Holy Spirit. It should be replaced by godly wisdom. The values instilled in us from the world we walk in, as they've tried to teach us the things that we ought to think are important, the things we ought to put value on. Let your worldly value system be replaced by the godly value system. Now, these are all things that I have listed that I have seen cases throughout my ministry of people who don't lay that stuff down they come to Jesus, they come to salvation, but they bring that garbage in. It doesn't belong there. And these changes, they don't all happen in an instant. Sometimes people are so radically, miraculously saved that there are instantaneous changes in their life. There are testimonies of that. There are examples of that. As a matter of fact, when I was a, just a... A teenager, a young teenager, there was a man in my hometown that was well known as being the town drunk. His name was Thaddeus. Thaddeus stumbled all over town under the influence of alcohol day after day. But he came to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. My dad and one other man in the church went over and visited with him. When they went to visit with him, he was what? He's drunk. And they witnessed to him. They shared the plan, plan of salvation with him. He accepted Christ into his heart. They prayed with him, and when they got done praying, he was immediately sobered up completely, never touched another drop of alcohol the rest of his life. The stumble bum of a drunk became a godly man, sobered by the power of Christ and by his experience in salvation. So you see, sometimes it does happen. Sometimes you come to Christ and some of those kinks in your life take a while to get worked out, and we understand that. I would love it if everybody was immediately radically changed from what they used to be into what God wants them to be, but sometimes it's a process, isn't it? Now, one of the last things that I want to list as an example of things that change in your life when you come to Christ, if you come to Christ and you used to be Scrooge, that needs to be replaced. Now you be, need to be Santa Claus. 
You go from being selfish and stingy into being generous. A spirit of generosity is a godly spirit. It's a Christian spirit. You come into Christ tight-fisted, and God doesn't save you, doesn't save your pocketbook. You're going to struggle fulfilling God's will in your life. Luke thought it was noteworthy when he wrote this little part, finishing out the fourth chapter, to point out the remarkable generosity of the new Christian community. Now, I don't know what kind of attitude these people had about their finances coming into their saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. I don't know if they came in stingy people or not. But I do know that he's describing these new believers as being very generous people, very caring people. They cared about one another. They cared about their Christian community. And Luke says they did not consider their possessions their own. Isn't that remarkable? And we're trying to preach this sermon in the middle of one of the most materialistic uh, cultures and ages we've ever known. We have so much stuff. And we find our fulfillment of life in owning stuff. And we've got things that we bought that we've laid on the shelf or we retired or we put it away and we could all point as I haven't used that in years. That represents the value that some person in a third world country could live like a king if they even had that much money. We just buy this stuff and we accumulate it. It's so materialistic. But what got into these people when they came to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, they, they did not have a lot of teaching. They didn't have a seminar to tell them how they ought to think about their finances now that they've become a Christian. They, it simply became apparent to them that when they, when they were saved that suddenly their possessions were not just their own. They were blessed with things so that they might bless others. It became a very common mentality in the early Christian community. And occasionally, occasionally, new Christians struggle with the concept of giving generously into the work of the kingdom. And occasionally, old Christians struggle with the concept of giving generously into the work of the kingdom. But we're supposed to grow out of that. And as far as the new converts are concerned, I will explain why sometimes they struggle with this. Undoubtedly, they have historically governed their finances by worldly philosophies and standards. They've, if they've budgeted their money at all, they've done it by carnal and earthly standards. Their budget may not be a budget at all. Their budget may be earn it and spend it. That's, that's their financial plan. They work, let's just take maybe a typical non-Christian coming into a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Historically, let's say that this particular person has spent their life working to pay their bills. And if they have anything left over, they treat themselves. Whatever they want, if they want to go out for a nice meal that they haven't been able to afford, they will splurge and they go out for a nice meal. If they want to squirrel their money away and buy something they've wanted all along, some toy that they want, something, they will do that. That has been their worldly budget. Then Christianity comes into the picture, and one of the things they are first exposed to in Christianity is the kingdom runs on the finances of the kingdom adherents. 
and we're not a money-making organization. We don't have a business out there where we're creating funds to bring it into finances. We only operate on the generosity of those people who uh, attach themselves to us. That's the way we operate. And so suddenly they're coming in where they become a part of those who are contributors to the church. And suddenly they're confronted with this concept that we all contribute from our resources. Now, this is the person that came in that struggles to pay their bills. Whatever they have left over, they treat themselves a little bit, and then they come into the church, and the church to them is saying, give us some of what you got. And they say, well, there goes my fun money. There goes my special meal out once a month. I barely have enough left over scratching to put things together to even treat myself, and now they want that. And you see how that confronts the new Christian, and they say, I'm not sure that I can be a part of this. I can't afford to be a part of the kingdom of God. But interestingly, the people in this passage in Acts didn't struggle with the idea of generosity. You've got to understand many of these people, if not most of these people, were not rich people. They didn't have a lot. They just came to the point of saying, whatever I've got, I now understand it just doesn't belong to me. It belongs to God, and I'm just a steward of this. In other words, their wallet, their purse, their bank account, their personal assets, to use a few metaphors, all got saved along with them. They were eager and ready to share. And the second point I want to make as I develop this, because that's not everything I have to say about it. That's just one facet of this. The next thing I want to share about this is that God wants you more than he wants your things. That's more important to him. Now, this might seem like a strange twist on the, on the uh, apparent theme of this passage because these people were bringing their valuable assets and signing them over and helping to finance the immediate needs of the new Christian community, and then I come up with this, well, God wants you more than he wants your things. How do you get that out of this? Well, let me tell you a story. There, there was a missionary that uh, pastoring a church in Buenos Aires began preaching on discipleship. And you know, a part of discipleship is preaching on finances, generosity, kingdom stewardship. That's a part of discipleship. And as he preached on discipleship, the people began to take him very seriously. And they came in, some of these people, and they signed the titles to their homes over to the church because he'd taught on discipleship, no doubt read this passage in Acts. The people were moved. They were touched. They came in and began to sign their homes, their land over to the church. It took six months as the pastor was stunned at the response that he was getting. And they went to prayer and said, God, what do we do now? All these people are giving their houses, their homes to us. And after six months, he went back to the donors with this message. He says, the Lord doesn't, because they were giving their houses, but they, they, they were no longer living in us. Now the church has all these empty houses. What are we going to do? And the pastor went back to the people and he said, the Lord doesn't want your empty houses. He wants you in your houses totally devoted to him, making you and your houses available for the kingdom work. Now, that's not the consummate answer. That's not the one that fits every situation, every church. But in this case, that's exactly what they needed to do. Go back to the people, say, 
God honors your generosity. God honors your heart. God honors your attempt. But this is not helping us achieve our goal and what we need to do here. So here's your house back. Live in it, but be just as generous and just as open and just as available when God needs you as you're wanting to be right now. So the people took their houses back, and it changed their attitude about what was previously considered their possessions. Now they weren't living in their home. They were living in God's home, and they were opening up their homes and making it available to others, and they were willing to use their possessions, be it their cars, be it their homes, whatever it was, for the work of the kingdom. So you see, giving everything to God doesn't necessarily mean signing it over to him, but it does at the very minimum mean being a good steward of that and making everything available to God as he has the need. I learned a principle, a valuable principle from my parents who gave me an excellent example of Christianity in so many different ways. They were always willing to use whatever they had for the work of the kingdom. And I, I want to give you just one example. Obviously, they opened their house uh, to serve the needs of the church. Uh, their vehicles, their equipment were always made available for the work of the church. If dad had something at the house and the church needed it and we were in a working program, he'd take it out of the church and we'd use it. And if it got wore out, we, we'll replace it. It's just, it's, it's for the Lord's use. Well, my dad got to the point where he, he, he always wanted a nice car. He had grown up dirt poor. We lived in a very modest house, but something about having a nice car appealed to dad. So he, he found a, a Cadillac Eldorado that belonged, formerly belonged to Dr. Weber in town. And it was on the showroom floor. It was a trade-in. And, uh, you know, if you get it used, you don't have to pay the big sticker price. So he, he got a decent price on it. And he was so happy having his Cadillac Eldorado. And whenever it would snow at the church, it was big, heavy, got the big front nose on it. The old Cadillac Eldorados did front-wheel drive. He would take his car out to the church. And we had a, a circular drive that went around the entire building. You would park on that circle, and then you could go in. But there was a circular drive. Entered, exited the same place where you entered. That was our snowplow. We didn't have tractors. We didn't have money to hire anybody. Dad would take his front-wheel drive Eldorado Cadillac out there, and he'd put me in it, and he'd say, run around this thing. Well, I was all for that. <laughs> Fishtail once in a while. I'll get that snowbank over there and slide into it. And the more I went around, the more I packed the snow down, they said, now we can get people in here Sunday. That's the best we could do. Uh, and, you know, you, you would think, uh, you're using your car for the kingdom's work? Oh, yeah. Uh, we were trying to put rafters up on the building we were uh, building for the church. Uh, I'd say rafters. We put trusses up. And we had built the trusses, and they were heavy. We could not lift them. We didn't have manpower to lift them. So uh, Dad built a lever that he, he mounted on the wall, and, and uh, it, was, it was shaped like this. And so the... the uh, 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 
the truss was, was uh, t attached to this one, and this was, the, this was the point up here where he pulled it, and he would pull it like this. It would lift that truss up. Then we could swing it around and get it in place. Well, where, where's the horsepower to do this? We've got a Cadillac Eldorado. We're going to get it out there and hook it onto this. This, became our, this is our tractor. This is our construction equipment now. And we threw th stuff in the back seat. We threw stuff in the trunk. I remember hauling riding lawnmowers out in the, tr in the trunk of our Cadillac Eldorado. We used it for everything because it, Dad wasn't there to protect his investment. He was glad to have it. It made him feel good, but this was God's car. And it didn't make any difference if we tear it up, use it for God's kingdom. He just wanted to use it. So see, I learned something early in life that was valuable to me. I saw another man in my church that he was... Uh, wearing some, some nice uh, Sunday dress clothes. But he had to help somebody work on their car. And he was down in his Sunday clothes on the ground helping them work on that. And I, I questioned him. I said, you're going to get your Sunday clothes there? He said, I don't have anything I won't use. Now, there's a philosophy to live by. Want to buy a bunch of stuff and put it in a showcase somewhere and look at it? He said, I don't have anything I don't use. And I, that, that, I mean, he only said it once, and it was just a passing moment in my time. I'll never forget it. You don't know how things you do and things you say permanently impact people. This was a group of people I grew up under, I was influenced by, that everything they had, they did not consider it theirs. This belongs to God. What a marvelous attitude to have. It's not my house. It's God's house. He lets me live there. <laughs> he makes me take care of it. It's not my car. It's God's car. He lets me drive it. If he needs me to use it for the work of the kingdom, I have to do that. And that's hard sometimes. Having three boys, we found it was very convenient for our family to have a van most of the time when my boys were growing up. But anybody who has a van or a pickup and you go to a church, you are a target for the church. Hey, you have a pickup. Can I borrow that pickup? Hey, you have a van. We're taking some kids to youth camp. Can we? My, my van got borrowed every year because the church didn't have a van. Only new car I ever bought in my life. The only new car was a nice new van. And the first time they came up to me and said, we want to take some kids to youth camp. Can we borrow your van? I'm going, Lord, you're going to have to really do a work on my heart now. <laughs> I'm getting attached to this thing. Yeah, you can use my van. So they went, to, they went to camp. For some unexplainable reason, one of these uh, youth that we took to camp thought he needed to take his barbells with him. And when he got to camp and he had his barbells all assembled and they had to move all the kids from this side of the camp to the other side of the camp, he got in there and the barbells wouldn't fit, so he just crammed them in against the door, ripped the upholstery on my door, I'm looking at that and say, God, can you see what they did to your car? <laughs> I never did hear back from God. He didn't care. It was that way till the, way, till the day we sold it. I mean, it, it was his car. It's not my money. It's not my car. It's not my tools. If I wear my tools out working for the kingdom, 
bless God. God is looking for trustworthy people who will be good stewards of things. And if you don't want to be good stewards of the things God has given you, don't be surprised when God takes it away. Now, when I was young and sassy, I, didn't, I wasn't quite as careful about how I responded to people. I was not politically correct. I had, we had, we had made some bumper stickers because we were in a campaign at our church trying to build a new building. And I think we had made some bumper stickers, got some hats, and they all said, hand me another block. Well, one of the, one of the popular Christian ministers had written a book called Hand Me Another Brick. So we borrowed from that, and, and we were laying concrete blocks to build this, and so we, our campaign was Hand Me Another Block. And uh, I made up these bumper stickers, and I gave them out to the people, and one of my deacons had just bought a brand-new car. And he said, uh, I'm not putting that on my car. I said, that's, that's okay. I was handing it out like on a Sunday night or something. He said, I'm not putting that on my car. It's fine. I said, do you have a bicycle? He said, yes. I said, put it on it because I think you might be riding it one of these days. <laughs> you see, if you're going to get stingy with God, don't be surprised if he doesn't trust you with it anymore. He kind of went like this. He went, ooh. Point number three, the right way and the wrong way. Now, in verse 36, Luke mentions a man named Joseph, and then he says he's also known as Barnabas. This is the same Barnabas that later became a teammate with Paul, co-missionaries. And it just is noted that Joseph, also known as Barnabas, brought the price of some land, sold some land, and uh, sold a field and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. And that's, that ends up the fourth chapter. Then you go into the fifth chapter, which there shouldn't be a chapter division there. So you should read that without having any kind of a pause. It goes immediately into another story. So you've got this story of a man named Barnabas that comes and, and brings the price of his field and puts it at the apostles' feet. And immediately we have the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Those of you who are familiar with the Bible are already ahead of me on what the story of Ananias and Sapphira is about. But I'm going to go ahead and read this passage just to refresh us. Now, a man named Ananias together with his wife, Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. See, Barnabas sold one. They also sold one. It, the way this is positioned in there, it makes it sound like Ananias and Sapphira were kind of impressed by what Barnabas did. And as the story unfolds, we have to also wonder if maybe they weren't thinking, oh, Barnabas got a lot of uh, uh, accolades. He, he got a lot of attention uh, for doing that. I think we would like to have that kind of accolades and attention and presence in the kingdom. He's, he's a, bit, a bit of a hero, so let's do that too. It was kind of like a, a copycat thing. So they also sold a piece of property, and with his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but he brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. And Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has filled your heart? so that you've lied to the Holy Spirit and kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land. Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? And what makes you think of doing such a thing? You've not just lied to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. The great fear seized all who heard what had happened, and then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. But the story's not done. 
Three hours later, his wife came in, and not knowing what had happened, Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? She said, yes, that's the price. And Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. And at the mo that moment, she fell down at his feet, and she died. And the young men came in, and finding her, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church when they heard about these events. And it's an interesting time in church when you have to put together a committee on standby to carry out the dead people. Who wants to serve on that one? We're putting together a committee, just in case. And the story leaves us with a lot of questions. Because when we're telling the story of Ananias, we don't see specifically where Ananias lied. We don't see what Peter discerned to be uh, dishonesty. He had some land. He had the money. He kept part of it, gave it, and everybody here would probably say, So what? It was his. Peter admitted it. It was your land. It was your money. But the, the revelation comes in telling the account of Sapphira when he said, is this all the money? So somewhere not written in the story is Ananias representing, this is everything I got from the land. That's not written there, but it's inferred. And whenever Ananias came in saying, I sold some land, and he could have very easily said, here's some of the prophets, and that would have satisfied it. But he said something misleading when he said, I sold some land, and here is the money. And then you don't lie to a Holy Spirit-filled preacher because God will straighten those things out and embarrass you. And Ananias very proudly says, I sold some land. Here is the money, making it sound like he was giving it all. Then the Holy Spirit spoke to Peter and said, he's lying to you. Call him on it. And Peter said, I just got a message. I just got a word from the Lord. You're lying. That's not all the money. And of course, the tragedy is the man dies as a result. You can't blame Peter. He didn't kill the man. All he did was tell the truth. And God is responsible for the judgment, not Peter. It's a contrast to what Barnabas did. The first is a brief reference to a man who came and gave his land. It was all straightforward. It was all above board. And the second one is a husband and wife who decided to keep part of the sale of the land. So far, it's okay. If you want to sell and give half, that's okay. If you want to sell and give 25%, that's okay. If you want to sell and give 10% and call it time, that's okay. But when you walk in there, you better tell the truth and don't misrepresent it. That's what Peter was saying. It was all yours. You can do whatever you want, but don't come and lie to me about it. And they misrepresented it. Luke uses the word when he said you, they kept back part of the land. The word there, if you could read Greek, is they embezzled. <laughs> Say, it was in their heart not to do the honest thing. Luke said, if we could read Greek, they embezzled the money from themselves. 
from God. The word used there, embezzled, is only used one other time in the entire New Testament. It's used over in Titus 2.10 where its slaves are urged not to steal. It's translated steal there. Translated steal from their masters and work to gain their trust. It said don't do that. Don't steal. Don't embezzle. So see, when they refused to acknowledge that they were uh, keeping part of the money back, it was determined in God's eyes to be stealing from him and they died as a result. Now, great fear gripped the church. I think part of the problem is we don't have as much fear of God. We don't have a healthy fear of God like we really need to govern our actions. You can do things and you think nobody saw me, but God saw you. Does it matter to you that God saw you? Now we're getting ready to go into a capital campaign. If you have assets that you have no need for, and you want to sell those assets, and you want to give a part of it to the church, that would be all right. If you want to give it all to the church, that'll be all right. If you struggle with what to do with it, so I don't know. Pastor preached a sermon about people dying over things like this. It's yours to do with what you want. You can make up your mind between you and God. God is not requiring you to give 100% or 50%. He's not. When you make up your mind, just be honest about it. You don't want to lie to God. Don't get mixed up in that. From this story, and I'm going to conclude, I've got four quick points, summary points to make. First of all, let me suggest to you good stewardship, in summary, requires generosity. William Willimon observed that a surprisingly large amount of the scripture in the book of Acts deals with economic issues within the Christian community. Next time you read Acts, keep that in mind, how often they talk about kingdom finances. It's a common theme through the book of Acts. We shouldn't be afraid to talk about money in the kingdom. Neither should we be predators like a lot of big evangelists and big TV preachers are. It just hurts my heart that they prey on the gullible and the innocent. Number two, good stewardship requires honesty. I said you don't have to sell your car, you don't have to sell your truck, you don't have to sell your boat, you don't have to sell your motorcycle and give the money to the church. But if you say you're going to do it and you sell it and lo and behold you got twice what you thought you were going to get and then you say, well, I can keep half of it and still give the whole amount. Now you're playing games with God. When you turned over to God and he got that extra good bargain for you, he did that because he wanted the increase. Not because he wanted you to suddenly split it with him. Be honest with God. Number three, good stewardship requires humility. The context of this story suggests that Ananias and Sapphira were inspired by Barnabas and they did this out of pride out of need for recognition Barnabas came with the right spirit Ananias and Sapphira didn't number four church discipline is absolutely vital to the ongoing health of the church see Peter was responsible 
for calling them to task for bringing this deception, this dishonesty into the church. One of the toughest things to do as a pastor is to execute proper church discipline within the church. People don't set well with that. There are people sitting in the congregation of any church that don't have a clue what the details are of any given situation, but that doesn't keep them from forming an opinion about whether it was right or wrong. I've had to... I've had to do church discipline in times past. It's never fun. It's never easy. And it's never clean and neat. It always divides a few people who, standing afar off and not knowing the details, want to express opinions about whether that was right or wrong, and he shouldn't have done that, and he had no business, and I don't understand. And the, the small church is blessed to have her there as part of our team of musicians. Yet, the lady could not remain faithful to her husband. She had had multiple affairs, multiple, multiple attempted affairs throughout her life. Uh, and the, the final straw that broke the camel's back is she is one of the women who had an affair with the former pastor before he was forced to leave. And everybody tried to cover that old nonsense up, cover that garbage up. Well, I came into this rat's nest of a situation, and you've got to fix this. You can't cover it up. You can't ignore it. You've got to get the garbage out. And dealt with the issue and had to report the pastor to the district office because he was off somewhere else trying to apply for another church, and now you're not going to do that. You're going to fix this in your life before you go on and try and hide your mistakes and bury them somewhere else. And then uh, <clears throat> this lady, got to do something with this lady now. What am I going to do? Sit down and talk with her. I said, the best thing I can do is offer you rehabilitation. And you need to take time off from being on the platform, having this presence up front. You need to get things right with your husband. You need to, to uh, uh, get your life restored, get back on track. When you are back on track and doing right and doing well and repentant of what you've done, we can get you back in. Well, she agreed to it. The rest of the church was angry at me because I took their piano player away. And then they began to rise up against me. How mean pastor is. He doesn't have any business doing that. We forgive her. She needs to be back up there. I said, she's not healed. She's not well yet. She hasn't fixed her life yet. Nevertheless, I lost that battle. Her own husband, whom she had been unfaithful to, came to me and scolded me and said, it's not right what you're doing to my wife. You've taken something very precious away from her. My own board stood against me. I said, you know what? I'm losing this battle, and I'll give you exactly what you want. But I'm telling you right now, it's the wrong thing. Put her back on the platform. There you go. You've got what you want. It wasn't just a few months later that she started going home from church and sleeping with another man, came back and sat in church with her husband, leave the church, go home, sleep with another man. They ended up divorced. It all went downhill after that because nobody would listen to me. Now, who's to say she wouldn't have done that had she gone through this? Nobody's to say that, but the church wouldn't have looked like blind idiots if they'd have stuck with the plan to offer rehabilitation. Church discipline is not easy, but it is vitally necessary for a healthy church.
great fear seize the whole church, and it should, when we see what it means to be corrupt in God's house. It has a, it's supposed to have a very sobering effect on the church. It's supposed to. Unhealthy churches, when you just try and bury it, hide it, and forget it, and hope it goes away. Would you bow your heads?